If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When did people first realise that Everest was the world's highest mountain? Did Mallory really try and climb it just because it was there? And how did an Everest expedition spark a diplomatic crisis known as the Affair of the Dancing Llamas? Tomorrow marks the 70th anniversary of Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay's famous first summit. So to mark the occasion, Dr Jonathan Westerway answers these questions and more in conversation with David Musgrove in this Everything You Want to Know episode on the history of mountaineering on Everest. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. The first question, the basic one is, where is Everest and how high is it? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Everest is situated on the international border between Tibet, China and Nepal. So it's in the kind of eastern Himalaya range. So if you looked at a global map, you know, you'd have India to the south, China and Tibet to the north. And it's in that kind of border mountain range, which is, of course, the highest mountain range in the world. 
In terms of how high it is, well, uh, lots of people have um, come up with different figures, but the current accepted figure, which was agreed by the Chinese and Nepalese surveyors in 2020, is that it's 8,848.86 metres, which in in old money is 29,031.9 feet. There was some controversy in the last few decades. You know, the Nepalese surveyed the snow height, the Chinese surveyed the rock height, but they've eventually agreed. Uh, And that figure pretty much matches the surveyed height from 1852, really, within tens of feet. So we've known we've known of the height of Mount Everest. We've known that it's it's the highest mountain in the world since the middle of the 19th century. Well, let's just jump onto that then, actually, because we've got a question from Holly Dolly Dudar, who wants to know when was it actually surveyed and measured? And she sort of followed up with when did the West become aware of Everest being the highest peak? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it was surveyed from Darjeeling by the Survey of India when India was part of the British Empire. Uh, It was originally called Peak Gamma, uh, and then they changed that to Peak B in 1847 and eventually it became peak 15. Nobody had ever been close to Everest at the time, no Western surveyors. Anyway, of course, there were people living around around Everest. So it took quite a while to work out that it, it was the highest mountain in the world. I think um, eventually there was an Indian surveyor whose name, he was, uh, that was called a computer in the Survey of India, and his name was Radhanath Sikdar, and he worked out, I think, in 1852 that actually Everest was was higher uh, than Kanchenjunga, and it was actually the highest mountain in the world. But it took a long time before people got close to Everest to survey it in more detail. So that's pretty incredible surveying work from the mid-19th century to get so close to the to the figure that we've got today then. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Sikdar was uh, an expert in spherical trigonometry, you know, the trigonometry of of the globe, basically. Uh, He was a very accomplished mathematician. Uh, He was good friends with the Surveyor General, and uh, he was critical in determining that Everest uh, was actually the highest mountain in the world. Mm So one of the most popular search engine questions on the topic is is why it is actually called Mount Everest. Um, and it sort of follows up with what other names does it go by? You've mentioned a, a couple of names that were uh, sort of at the start of the surveying process. But but what's, what, what is the origin of Everest itself? Um, so it was named by Andrew Waugh, who was the, the head of the Survey of India in the middle of the 19th century after his predecessor, Sir George Everest, and he actually pronounced his surname Everest. <laughs> so we've been pronouncing it uh, incorrectly ever since. And it was decided to to honour the previous surveyor general by naming by naming the mountain after him. But it, of course, it does have other names. At the time, they knew that uh, it had a Tibetan name, Chomalungma, uh, and there are there are other names as well. Regular podcast listener Greg Buckle um, has asked, did local people scale Everest before Europeans? That's an interesting question. There's no evidence that they did. And when you look at the sheer amount of resource, technology and effort it took to get two people to the summit by 1953, you'll realise what a prodigious task it would have been. I think there are other places in the world where there were 
people climbing to quite high altitudes. So if you look at South America, you know, we know the Inca were performing religious rites up to 20, 22,000 feet, but the mountains there are quite different. You know, they're low angled volcanic cones. The weather conditions are quite stable. So it's a completely different environment. And, uh, you know, you've got another eight, 9,000 feet to go in the Himalayas. So it seems extremely unlikely. Most of the people living around the mountain were living at subsistence levels in the Solukumbu in Nepal or in the Tibetan provinces to the north. And they simply had no need to go to the summit. And, you know, it would have been, it would have been an ex- extremely challenging, you know, before the advent of uh, modern modern technology. So, and also, of course, you've got to bear in mind that um, the summit of the mountain has spiritual connotations for local Tibetan groups. Uh, it was believed, the name Chomalungma is believed to have originated and derived from the name of a long-life goddess uh, whose name was Mio Lang Sangma, which means the immovable lovely lady of the alpine willows. Uh, and there's some really interesting research being done at the moment by Ruth Gamble at La Trobe University uh, in Australia about this and about how this uh, notion that the mountain is inhabited by a deity is still uh, adhered to by groups around the mountain. You've stepped into the next question from Steph uh, McVank, who wants to know when did interest in Ever- in climbing Everest really first begin, and and what was it um what was it first born out of? So, do you want to go into a little bit more detail on that one? Yeah, sure. So, really, I think we have to think about the start of the twentieth century and various explorers like Sir Francis Young, husband, had traversed Asia and crossed over. Uh, the Karakoram range, and he'd seen Everest from a distance, and he talked to Lord Curzon, who was the Viceroy of India uh, early in the century, uh, and they'd had discussions about whether it would be possible to climb Everest. John Noel, who was a mountaineer who went on the early Everest expeditions, had got within, I think, 40 miles of Everest in 1913, and he was very keen on promoting the idea of climbing Everest to the Royal Geographical Society back in London. Uh, But then the First World War broke out uh, and uh, the idea was picked up again in about 1919. And then the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club put together a kind of uh, Mount Everest committee to look at the possibility of climbing Everest. And they sent the first reconnaissance expedition to Everest in 1921 under Charles Howard well, that leads us into into the next question, which is um, a bit of a leading question from uh, Nick Lloyd, who who's a First World War historian. He wants to know who were the first climbers to reach the summit of Mount Everest, and specifically, did Mallory make it? So you'd better just tell us um, who Mallory is and, and and where that expedition fits into the story. So the first people, uh, verified people to reach the summit were Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay in 1953. Big open question is: Did George Mallory and and Sandy Irvin, you know, reach the summit in 1924? I suspect we will never know. You know, a huge amount of ink has been spilt discussing exactly whether they could have, which way the evidence points to. Uh, Mallory's body was found in the late 90s uh, on the north face, you know, below some of the rock steps on the on the northeast ridge. And people have tried to piece together, you know, various scenarios. Um, the bottom line is, you know, we don't know. There has been a lot of discussion around 
what happened to Mallory's camera. He took Somerville's camera to the summit with him. People have wondered if we could find the camera and the film was still there and it could be preserved and exposed. Would it provide proof that they reached the summit? Who knows? (laughs) you know, whether we'll ever find that camera. But at the moment, that's all, you know, it's unproven whether they reached the summit. Could they have reached the summit? You know, were they physically capable? Did they have the technology to do it? Did they have the the ability? Uh, Mallory was a superb rock climber. Sandy Irvin was a very fit athlete. Uh, But the objective hazards, challenges at that altitude, they're not insignificant. They would have had to have done some pretty serious rock climbing at very high altitude. And even if they got to the summit, looking at the timescales they were working on on the 8th of June, 1924, they may not have had enough time to get back down, you know, in reasonable time. They may have had an accident on the way back down. But the bottom line is, we just don't know. Well, that takes us on to a good question from uh, KT, who asked, why was there such a big gap between Mallory and Hillary? She wants to know whether people were spooked. So it's, uh, it's, it's about 30 years, isn't it, between those two expeditions? Yeah, the straightforward answer is that the Tibetans banned any further expeditions after 1924 for 10 years um, because they were extremely cross <laughs> uh, about something that happened after the expedition. So John Knoll, who had the rights to film on Everest, uh, and he made a film called The Epic of Everest, and he toured it around the UK and around Europe and around North America, also brought back with him some what he called lamas. They were some Tibetan monks. Uh, they did not have permission from their monastic orders to leave Tibet or from the government of Tibet. And they performed a kind of vaudeville show in theatres to provide a context for the film. Because Noel was concerned there was there was lots of stuff missing from his film, local colour, but he didn't have shots high up on the mountain. So he tried, he tried to create this kind of Everest spectacle. Uh, and it was extremely lucrative for him. And he was in partnership with the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club, and they formed a company. But the Tibetan government was absolutely incensed because they thought their uh, portrayal of of Tibetan religious culture was uh, insensitive. You know, they were, they were, that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't authorised. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a real religious ritual. Uh, you know, the monks didn't have permission, and it caused a diplomatic incident, incident which um, really affected uh, diplomatic relations between British India and Tibet. So it took a lot of work by the British political agent in Sikkim, Bhutan, and uh, and, and and Tibet over the next. 10 years to gain permission for the next expedition, which was in 1933. There's a great paper on it by uh, Peter Hansen, Professor Peter Hansen, and it's generally referred to as the affair of the dancing llamas. So, uh, you know, you can look it up on Wikipedia or you can find Peter's article. But yeah, yeah, extra- extraordinary. And it was covered up for a long time. You know, it was the British establishment came up with a kind of uh, a, a cover story to save face, but it eventually all came out into the open, really, when Walt Unsworth published his book on Everest in in the 1980s. Wow. And so The Affair of the Dancing Llamas, that's a, that's an, that's a fascinating title. So did these llamas have a, an impact in Britain? Did they make quite a ripple in society? Presumably they did. 
yeah, they were these these uh, Tibetans were were kind of on tour around the UK and Europe. The company that they set up to manage this eventually went bankrupt when the monks were um, going back to Tibet and they were stranded in Colombo and and they had to kind of raise funds to repatriate the monks. And then when the monks returned to Tibet, they were severely kind of reprimanded and punished by their orders because it had. Um, it had been a, a, you know, it caused an enormous amount of trouble for the for the Tibetan government. Okay, so then there was there was another expedition in the nineteen thirties. Once that uh, that diplomatic incident has subsided a bit, and then I guess Second World War probably um, puts a, a bit of a, a halt to, to anything further for a while. Were there any other big expeditions between the twenties and nineteen fifty three? Yeah, there were loads. Um, you know, so there was one in 19, 1933, there was 1935 reconnaissance, one in 1936, one in 1938. And then post-war, things kick off again uh, in 1950. There was a reconnaissance in 1951. The Swiss attempted Everest in 1952. And then 1953, you have the successful ascent. Okay, so a lot a lot of lead up there then to 1953. The big search engine question is why did the 1953 expedition succeed? I think they they they'd learnt an enormous amount over all these previous failed expeditions. I think it's generally accepted that the logistics in 1953 managed by John Hunt were uh, you know exceptional. Hunt had a military background and he knew that he had to uh, kind of rotate rotate people up through camps and he had to keep them provisioned. Um, there was a lot of work by a physiologist called Pugh, I think, who really looked at particularly hydration and feeding at altitude and looked at the, looked at the body as a kind of machine that needed fueling. So he worked very closely on designing equipment and efficient stoves and things like this. And they'd perfected oxygen apparatus as well. You know, they they had a lot of high altitude experience during the war with bomber crews um, f- needing oxygen equipment. And uh, oxygen equipment had just become better. Um, so you put all those things together, those kind of 20, 30 years of trying and failing, learning what works, you know, new equipment. And uh, that all went to co- contribute to to the the success. So the, there was a question from James Witts who wanted to know: Was there any tech of the age that helped the likes of uh, Sir Edmund Hillary acclimatise to such extreme altitudes at much lower levels? Is, you've sort of just alluded to uh, some things there. Presumably, there was a quite an effort to make sure that there was tech to back up what they were doing. They were physically monitored a lot more carefully than and treated more like athletes you know, than, than previous expeditions. You know, some of the expeditions of the 30s had taken a radically different approach. The Eric Shipton, who uh, famously pioneered a kind of a very lightweight approach to mountaineering on some of his uh, expeditions uh, to Everest, they had minimal food, you know, and, and consequently, you know, they just weren't, be, they weren't being powered properly to work at altitude. So Hunt's approach was completely different um, and it it was run more like a military operation rather than a, you know, kind of uh, amateur uh, mountaineering endeavour. So, uh, and it paid off. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hmm. So, so one of the most popular questions, and, and there's one, uh, M- MHFQ on Twitter asked it, but, but numerous people did, was what equipment was used in the first attempts? You kind of imagine that there's there's poor souls trying to hike up the mountain wearing hobnail boots and wearing leather breeches and stuff like that. Was, <laughs> how, how basic was some of the kit and how advanced did it get in the run-up to, to 53? Well, certainly in the, those 20s expeditions, the uh, clothing you know, was effective, but it wasn't much different from clothes people would wear on the hills in in the UK. Wool layers, tweed. Certainly in 1924, they started using Grenfell cloth, which was manufactured starting in 1923. And it was commissioned by Sir Wilfrid Grenfell, who uh, was running mission hospitals in Labrador. And he needed a windproof, kind of waterproof, cotton ventile cloth that could keep people, you know, warm and dry in extreme uh, environments. So there was a company, uh, I think it was in Blackburn in Lancashire that that made the cloth. And in 1924, they they took Grenfell cloth to, they made windproof garments out, out of that on Everest. And they had them for their high altitude Sherpa porters as well. So um, George Ingle Finch, who was an Australian member of of the expedition, he also made his own down jackets as well. So he was really innovating at the time, you know, and he knew the importance of, of keeping warm. So there was some kind of technical innovation around uh, clothing. And of course, they experimented with oxygen apparatus as well. It was still at a very early stage, but I suppose, you know, the, the biggest technical innovation in the in the 20s 
was the use of oxygen. And and they were, you know, conflicted over whether it should be used. But by 1924, you know, Mallory, who was originally quite hostile to the idea of using oxygen, was totally convinced that the mountain wouldn't be climbed without oxygen. And when they set off on, on you know, when Ma- Mallory and Irvin set off on the 8th of June, uh, 1924, you know, they were using oxygen equipment. So, but what was the the global impact of the of the nineteen fifty three expedition? How far did the story of the expedition spread around the world, and what impact did it have? Yeah, it was a global phenomenon. You know, at the time, people had long characterised Everest as the third pole, and it was very much seen as as the last of those great romantic heroic quests to conquer the extremes of the of the planet it made Tenzing Norgay uh, an international superstar you know he'd come from very humble beginnings he was born Carter in in Tibet and his family moved into the Solo Kumbu in Nepal you know he'd had a a long career supporting expeditions as a high altitude worker in the 1930s 1940s and then suddenly he's catapulted onto the world stage. You know, India embraces him and he ends up being part of India's um, mountaineering training centre. So, uh, you know, Ed Hillary, you know, went on to create some amazing foundations and charities that helped uh, develop the region. And of course, it triggered a whole new wave of interest in in climbing Everest from, you know, people all around the world wanted to be associated with climbing Everest and uh, linking, you know, their kind of endeavours with with the highest mountain in the world. And it became a kind of global signifier of, of success and prestige. Uh, and it becomes what it is today, you know, part of a kind of adventure tourism Mecca, <laughs> where where hundreds of people are, are climbing the mountain every every year and and living out their kind of dreams and visions through through being associated with the with the summit of Everest. So once Everest had been summited in fifty three, that didn't in any way put a stop to the uh, to, to the need to get to the top. It, in fact, it just encouraged people to to want to want to do more and and approach it differently, I suppose, and look at things like climate without oxygen and and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there were still lots of nationalist imperatives to climb the mountain. So the Swiss climbed it in 1956. The Chinese climbed it in 1960 from the north, the first time the mountain had been climbed from the north. And that was, you know, that was quite a global event as well. It was really important for, you know, the Chinese Communist Party. The United States climbed in 1963. There was an amazing traverse you know, that the Americans did of the West Ridge over the summit and down the South Col, which some people still think is, you know, one of the most, one of the greatest mountaineering achievements um, of all time. And it just goes on and on. 1975, Yunko uh, Tabai from Japan was the first woman to, to summit Everest. And now, you know, kind of everybody's chasing records, you know, to be the first person from their country or the youngest person from their country. You know, it's become a global signifier of prestige. Actually, we'll come on to to, to women on the summit in a, in a second. We had a question about that, but I just want to go back to to the role of Sherpas 
So there's, we've got a question about what is the role of Sherpas and other local people in mountaineering on Mount Everest. And you sort of talked about how Tenzing Norgay became like, you know, the, the, the global celebrity, maybe the, the figurehead for that community in a way, perhaps. Um, but they've got a crucial role in this story. We generally tend to refer to high altitude workers on Everest and other Himalayan mountains as Sherpas. Now, that's a kind of labour category. And actually, as an ethnic category, Sherpas are, you know, a kind of Buddhist Tibetan people who live in the Solo Kumbu south of Everest. But there are lots of other ethnic groups involved in labour on the mountain. You know, Nepal is a very ethnically complex, diverse place. And quite often what happens at the moment is Western clients want to have an interaction with Sherpas. So lots of these other ethnic groups pass as Sherpas on the mountains. They say, yeah, sure, we're Sherpas, you know, but they might be Gurung or Rai or uh, Limbu or, you know. Um, so, so there's an interesting kind of hidden ethnic complexity to labour on the mountain uh, today. But yeah, these expeditions required huge amounts of labour, 20s and 30s expeditions would have recruited labor in Darjeeling from, you know, Nepalese groups and other Sikkimese groups. When they got to Tibet, they would have recruited local Tibetans to help carry stuff as well. And, you know, by, by 1924, the British had developed this idea that Sherpas from the Solu Kumbu, ethnic Sherpas, were particularly well adapted to high altitude mountaineering work. Uh, and they developed this kind of mystique around, around the Sherpas as a kind of mountain race, which really echoed what they'd done with the Gurkhas from Nepal, who they developed this kind of notion as a martial race that they'd co-opted into the, the kind of uh, imperial rule in British India. So, yeah, you know, indigenous high altitude labour is absolutely critical to the success of all these expeditions. And a point that Nims Perger made in his in his recent film about his uh, nine month ascent of all the 8000 metre peaks, you know, he did it to highlight the contribution of Nepalese mountaineers. You know, if you look at the uh, the number of people who've climbed Everest, and climbed Everest multiple times, you know, the first 30 names on the list are Nepalese. And even in the 1930s, there were high altitude guides and mountaineers, Nepalese, who had way more experience than any Western mountaineers. But we know next to nothing about them because they were illiterate, they were written out of Western histories of mountaineering. I'm currently part of a research project called Other Everest, and we're we're trying to research the hidden histories of indigenous high altitude workers, you know, Sherpas and porters from the 1920s, 30s and 40s. Let's go back to, to women for a second, because um, Prachi Chitri asked who was the first woman to summit Mount Everest and, and also asked how many women have climbed Everest to date. So you, you, you already gave an answer to the first section, but I suppose it kind of begs a bigger question about how far women have been involved in the story of mountaineering on Everest, how far they've been allowed to be involved, I suppose, in the early expeditions. What's your take on that? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. Certainly those early 1920s expeditions did employ some female port, Tibetan porters. Uh, we've, we've got photographs of them, you know, in the Royal Geographical Society archives. But of course, these were, was a male world. You know, women were excluded from exploration. 
you know, I've come across one letter of a woman who applied to go on one of the uh, expeditions in the 1930s to Everest. But, you know, it was a it was a male club. You know, it was very uh, elitist and exclusive and it replicated the values uh, of its time. You know, so it was patriarchal. It was misogynistic and there wasn't any room for women in expeditions like this. So in terms of the number of women who've climbed the mountain, I think as of January 2023, yeah, the Himalayan database records, I think, 741 women who've climbed out of a total of about six and a half, seven thousand people who've climbed, climbed the mountain. But, you know, uh, some extraordinary female mountaineers have climbed the mountain yunko tabai from japan as i said was was you know the first in 19 in 1975 moving on to a, a, a slightly macabre topic but one that a lot of people are interested in and uh, uh, exemplified by one of the questions from nagayo asked who wants to know how many people have died on everest and and do they really use bodies as landmarks on the way up uh yeah i th- I think the figure is somewhere around 315 people have died on Everest. And in terms of the, you know, do they use bodies as landmarks? I think this this idea of body, we, we know that bodies are very difficult to remove from the mountain. So, and they very quickly become stuck to the mountain uh, because they freeze, you know, they get snowed over and then they become almost like features in the landscape. And it takes an extraordinary effort and expense to remove bodies. So traditionally in the past, when people died, if they couldn't recover the body, they were informally disposed of, they were pushed down crevasses or they were pushed off faces into the glacier basins glacial basins below so i think the story about bodies as way marks has come there was a body called green with that was referred to by the public as and climbers as green boots on the northeast ridge the body was in a kind of small cave sheltered rocky area and the fixed lines used to run right over the body so everybody had to jumar up past walk over the legs of the body almost so there was an extraordinary piece of research by a bbc journalist called rachel newer and and she she identified the body as belonging to sarang paljor who was on an uh, indian i think it was a police border force expedition in 1995 the one where there was the terrible storms when lots of people died and and, and Soang Paljor died then and, and his body remained on the mountain. You've got to remember that, you know, to recover bodies is extremely expensive. You need uh, repatriation insurance. It might cost $80,000 to pay six or seven Sherpas to hack the body off the mountain and carry it back down the mountain. So quite often, you know, people just don't have the money to do that. So the body, you know, remains where the person died. I think a lot of bodies in 2014 on the Northeast Ridge were, were cleared by the Chinese Tibetan Mountaineering Association and they were kind of removed from the ridge and, and placed elsewhere on the mountain. So bodies do kind of enter this kind of strange kind of persistent state at altitude. But at the same time, what we're finding at the moment is climate change 
because because stuff is melting, you know, particularly in the Kumbu Icefall on the south of the mountain. Body parts are emerging that have previously been disposed of and they're being picked up in um, environmental uh, cleanup operations that Nepalese ministries run. But that creates a problem for the Nepalese authorities because it's very difficult to identify these informally disposed of human remains and to try and do the appropriate thing with them, which would be to either bury them, repatriate them. Um, So climate change is actually kind of rapidly changing uh, what's going on on the mountain. I think increasingly now, you know, when people die, they can get helicopters up quite high onto onto the South Col. You know, they they do try and remove bodies um, by helicopter, uh, but it but it's not always possible. So, moving on, um, this this kind of leads back to what you were talking about earlier with the uh, the, the curious affair of the dancing llamas. But I wonder if there's more to add. Uh, there's a question: How have changing geopolitics in the course of the last couple of uh, centuries affected the story of Everest mountaineering? Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I go back to what I said first of all. I mean, Everest is situated on an international boundary. And to some extent, you know, it's a it's a boundary object which people approach from different areas. We've been talking about the early attempts to climb Everest in the 20s and 30s, and they were all British. And they were all British for a reason, because um, Everest became implicated in Britain's attempt to secure its rule over British India. And certainly after the First World War, there was a real sense that British prestige, British masculinity had taken a battering, and that if they could climb Everest, they could reassert their their kind of fitness to rule an empire. So it's very much kind of racial thinking. Uh, and the British... Uh, had a very sophisticated control of the trans-border regions of British Empire, those those mountain regions of the Himalaya, the Karakoram, the northwest frontier. And they controlled who who moved through those spaces very, very effectively through surveillance. And so the British were able to really kind of reserve climbing on Everest. They kept everybody else away from Everest, every other Western European nation, you know, uh, and wanted to um, keep Everest as a British project. At the same time, they were managing complex geopolitical relationships uh, between China uh, and Tibet. Uh, So perhaps a bit of context here, the British invaded Tibet in 1904 to try and force the Tibetans to kind of open up their country to uh, British trade and British goods. Uh, They imposed, you know, trade agents on them uh, and they kind of forced Tibet into into a more open relationship with its neighbour to the south. After the collapse of Qing China in, in 1911, you know, the British were concerned about instability in the region. After the Bolshevik Revolution in in Russia, you know, the British were very concerned about Soviet influences coming in across the Pamirs in the western end of the kind of Karakoram and Himalaya range. So there was constant anxiety about whether hostile powers, particularly Russia, later on Germany could approach India through this border region. So if you look at the 
if you if you look at the Himalayas as a great arc of mountains, there's 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 really two routes. There's probably three routes through that you could get an army through, which the British, you know, controlled very heavily. You know, one was through Afghanistan and Persia. One was up through Gilgit into Chinese Central Asia. And the other one was up through Sikkim and up into Tibet near where Everest is. So, so geopolitically, this region mattered to the British in India uh, and, and they monitored it very, very closely and controlled who travelled across this region. So if you go to the India office archives in uh, the British Library, the India office and the, and the government of India kept files on all travellers who requested to travel through the region um, and granted them permission or refused them permission. Um, and quite often th- those requests to travel were kind of, um, if the British were hoping to run an Everest expedition, uh, in the next few years, they, they became more restrictive and allowed less people through the region because of the sensitivities of the Tibetan government. So it was a heavily kind of monitored and surveilled um, environment in which these expeditions operated in the early years. Fascinating. That sort of takes us on to the last question, but why is it interesting to study the history of mountaineering on Everest? I can think of lots of reasons, but I'm sure I'm sure as, a, as an expert in it, you have your own reasons. Why do you think it's interesting? I think Everest uh, in particular, you know, I study the history of mountaineering around the world and exploration. Everest in particular has become this kind of global signifier of so many things, and it means different things to different people. Uh, you know, I sometimes describe it as as a boundary object. You know, it's it's a kind of massive thing which people approach from different perspectives, and quite quite often, the the different perspectives you know don't overlap or don't understand other perspectives. You know, so uh, you know we've written histories about Everest for the last you know fifty, sixty, seventy years, which make almost no mention of you know, indigenous high altitude workers and their extraordinary contribution to success on the mountain. You know, sometimes they're not even named. That's an extraordinary omission, you know, and as a historian, you know, who wants to write, uh, you know, new histories, histories of, of things that, you know, haven't really been addressed before, histories of things that are significant, that really matter. That's kind of, uh, that, that's important. That's a, you know, that's one of the things, um, that we want to do as historians is we want to, you know, tell these hidden histories, these untold stories, and show that there are multiple perspectives. Everest is a kind of, you know, complex circus which is constantly getting into the headlines and trying to understand what motivates people uh, to do what they do on Everest. You know, uh, is actually quite interesting, and it's interesting to historicize that and understand the origins of it. You know, why do people risk their lives, pay an enormous amount of money, go through a lot of suffering sometimes, sometimes when they're very ill-prepared, you know, to do it? What do they think they're going to get out of climbing Everest? You know, there's a really interesting psychology around um, kind of aligning your own goals with this kind of a uh, global signifier of of prestige and premiership you know it gets wrapped up into nationalist mountaineering people you know want to climb the mountain to you know celebrate um you know their own particular country or ethnicity sometimes people want to climb the mountain for personal reasons you know because they've been through tragedy in their own life and somehow psychologically 
climbing the mountain will give them a certain amount of agency and enable them to kind of deal with with challenges in the in their life or uh so it's a complex global phenomenon it's tied in with globalized adventure tourism now the mountain is suffering from kind of over tourism and you know the kind of overconsumption of the commons you know the environment is being degraded you know trash is dumped there uh creating all kinds of problems you know western consumer lifestyles are being replicated on the mountain well is that an appropriate way to climb a mountain what's it doing to the environment how will climate change affect the mountain some people are saying 10, 15 years time, you may not be able to climb Everest because it will be so unstable because of rapid loss of glaciers, permafrost. It's not freezing as much. You've got smaller windows to climb in. They're already talking about moving base camp further down the mountain to avoid kind of objective dangers like increasing avalanches and stuff like this. So as a historian, you know, it's really interesting to ask some questions about, you know, can history tell us something about why Everest is like it is today? You know, what kind of insights can we get from from the history of Everest and how will it help contemporary communities to adapt to the challenges they face in the region of, of overconsumption and climate change? Fascinating. Lots of topical issues there. But just in terms of the motivations, I thought it, you know, you, you made it sound very complicated. I thought it was very simple. I thought it was just because it's there. <laughs> well, yes. So Mallory's famous quote when he was asked by a New York journalist why he uh, why he wanted to climb Mount Everest. Lots of people assume that quote is, you know, a simple statement of fact. But actually, I'm doing some research uh, on exactly this at the moment. Mallory was notoriously, uh, you know, didn't suffer fools gladly. And <laughs> he uh, he was probably using it as a brush off for for the journalist in question. But actually being there is part of a complex kind of coded language of aesthetics that Mallory used. And it actually kind of signifies something different. For Mallory, being there signified a kind of coming together of kind of aesthetic and athletic uh, and physical and mental kind of endeavour. So I think Mallory was sending a kind of coded message to those in the know about the kind of aesthetic, poetic beauty of Everest. That was Dr Jonathan Westaway of the University of Central Lancashire. Jonathan's working on a new research project called Other Everests, which explores the overlooked aspects of the Everest mountaineering story. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.